Good evening. Welcome to episode one, trial episode, demo episode, beta or alpha, which comes before beta, maybe full of bugs episode of Kentucky Politics, More Than Meets the Eye. I am Adam Moore, your host here in Lexington, Kentucky. Joining me today, Rachel Mancilla. Rachel, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me with you, Adam. I'm excited to be here. Um, yeah, I'm Rachel Mancia. It's Mancia like tortilla. <laughs> and um, oh, that's okay. <laughs> and I um, am excited to be with you, Adam. We it's funny we became friends on social media. I run the Instagram account Moms for Kentucky, and have met many folks through that advocacy work. But you're one of the few guys that I've met in that work, Adam. So um, that's kind of cool. And I'm excited to be with you today. Outstanding. Um, so this is our first time running a podcast. So what we're doing is we're going to go over a little bit of our a thing from uh, an antidote from the week uh, each. And then we're going to hit something on Kentucky or local politics and then something for national politics as well. Keep it clean, keep it short, keep it concise, but hopefully things that are interesting to listen to and good to be sharing with people of Kentucky or anyone outside the bluegrass who is listening in. I want to swing away in my personal story for the week. So yesterday is my wife's birthday, was my wife's birthday. Uh, my wife is Andrea, and I am traditionally, I feel like bad at presents. I just do not know what to get any human being, let it alone be my <laughs> wife, my son. Anyway, I feel like I'm not someone who's traditionally good at presents, but I felt really good this year because during the summer, this is how advanced I was. In the summer, I had these ideas because we we're watching the Great British Baking Show, and they baked oh. this cake called the Seven... The English translation is seven veils, and it's an Italian cake. It's like traditional birthday cake of Paloma, Italy, or something. There's Paloma in Spain. Anyway, it's I, think so. I think it's an Italian cake. And so my wife, she's like, I want this for my birthday. And she won't remember this. So I make a note, and I save this tab in my phone for months and months and months. And so, again, not a traditional good gift giver. Uh, and I had this idea, too, back in the summer for a Christmas thing. I had a, a friend who makes custom custom things and i'm still not saying in case this does go out and she listens to it because she hasn't gotten it yet she hasn't gotten her christmas present yet <laughs> because the person who makes it he had some family stuff come up and so he has not been able to fulfill what he's going to make but i'm like all right i'm going to get this amazing special cake and so anyway i i it worked out i get this cake and it's made at a custom bake shop here in lexington and uh and we had it for her birthday and i don't know that she's that excited about it i was so excited to get this great Seven veils Italian cake, and I feel like um anyway she's not as you know as excited about it as I was to get this cake made, and that's my. Story. I always feel like the thought matters more than anything, and the fact that you sat on that for so many months that is so sweet. Also, love Great British Baking Show. That is a ten out of ten gift in my book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Great job. <laughs> well, my week. Um, let's see. I don't have anything super um fun or exciting going on with me personally, but. I was super excited about the Grammys. So I'll be honest, I did not watch in real time last night, but I had a blast on social media today, just catching up on fun clips here and there. Taylor's big announcement about her new album, of course, I was excited about. The fact that Joni Mitchell was on stage and just ugh, epic as ever, like it brought a tear to my eye, actually, um, as did watching Tracy Chapman perform. I just so excited for the story of that song. So I just really lived vicariously through others celebrating the Grammys today. And it was so fun for me. So that was a little highlight from my week. Awesome. This is for those who can't see this. I'm just nodding along. I have no idea that Taylor Swift has a new album coming out. So this is news <laughs> to me. 
And, well, uh, see, that's why this- you need you need friends, you know, in kind of the millennial mom era group. That that's me. I can keep you updated <laughs> on those things. Thank you. Thank you. You You're can be my token basic mom who um there, yeah. That. That's me. That's it. So we're going to dive into a couple things uh, locally. So each of us has chosen a, a topic that we want to talk about that's impacting either our local community or the state of Kentucky. And then we'll kind of facilitate the thing that's issuing or is interesting to us. One thing I want to talk about this week was House Bill 5, the Safer Kentucky Act. Now, this passed the State House of Representatives. It has gone over to the State Senate. Now, the Safer Kentucky Act, there's not a really good way of of explaining it for those who aren't familiar, but it's a, an omnibus anti-crime bill. An omnibus is just a fancy word of saying they threw all their things together for this. So we see omnibus bills. It could be theoretically with immigration or a budget bill. So this omnibus crime bill is basically they're saying all the things that we want to do with crime this year, we're going to throw it all into this one bill. And that's what we have in the Safer Kentucky Act. Now, the takeaway is that everybody wants to live in a safe neighborhood and a safe area. Everyone should have the, the ability here, hopefully in our country and our state, to live a life that is predominantly safe, where they feel safe where they are, that your kids are safe where they are, that you are safe where you are. And, and we all want that. And we're not getting on here, and I'm not getting on here to talk about I don't want Kentucky to be safer at all. And there are some things in there that I absolutely agree with. They have a, a crime for fentanyl now, if you traffic fentanyl, and it results in someone's death and now comes with a, uh, a manslaughter charge. Uh, it was originally written as a murder charge, but that's been worded down in amendments to manslaughter. But uh, clearly there's a fentanyl issue here. One of the issues that was in here as well is that uh, right now the the minimum sentence for even violent crimes, things that are written statutorily as violent crimes, was only serving 20% of the sentence before parole. I totally understand needing to serve more than 20%. Now, I'm not a big fan of what they upped it to. They upped it to 85% of the sentence. Again, this is just the version of the bill that the House passed, but the Senate could modify that as well. But there are some things in there that we can definitely get behind that might hopefully make Kentucky safer. I do feel, though, that what we see most of this bill doing is taking things that are existing crimes and punishing or making them harsher punishments and taking things that were not crimes, either lowering the barrier to make them a crime or writing new crimes. So I just want to highlight a a couple things in here. And then if you're listening, hopefully you can write your person in the state Senate who has not heard this bill yet, so they can hopefully amend it. And then if they do amend it, it'll come back to the House. They'll have to reconcile any differences that there are. So one thing that got a lot of attention was making street camping illegal, essentially homelessness. Street camping being being homeless in a place that you're not allowed to be homeless. And so it's been made to be a crime if you're camping or sleeping in your car for a certain number of hours or anywhere in public places or public property that you're not supposed to be. But it's now going to be a criminal offense where it isn't just you're removed, but you can be taken to jail. You can be imposed a fine. And so someone who's much more eloquent than me, uh, Representative Couture Heron, she said there is a problem of homelessness in this state uh, and particularly the urban areas of Louisville and Lexington. But we can't incarcerate ourselves out of the problem. We can't criminalize ourselves out of the problem. And so what we have is the state legislature saying you all need to get rid of your homeless people, but they fund nothing for homeless shelters. And I saw something like, we have 120 counties in Kentucky, for those who don't know. Something like 90 counties in Kentucky do not have uh, set homeless shelters that anyone can go to any day of the week. And then those counties that do have homeless shelters do not have enough beds for all those who are homeless. So what you're doing is, is you're criminalizing people who are unhoused without providing any solutions for it. There's a couple other things I wanted to bring up in here too. And Rachel, feel free to hop on or jump in and cut me off at any point if you want to as well. But a couple of these little nitpicky things 
they now have as a misdemeanor in the criminal code for property damage, anyone who does more than $1 of damage uh, with intent, which used to be $500. So if you imagine that if you and your landlord do not get along and you put a hole in your wall to hang a picture, that is definitely not $500 of damage, but it might be more than $1 of damage to spackle over that. That is now a criminal misdemeanor that could go on to wow. your record. And so we all understand why there is this threshold of $500. We know that most people, if they have to pay a deposit, if they're a renter, that deposit would cover the amount below that $500 anyway that, that already would have to forfeit for these damages. So again, we're just criminalizing something or lowering the barrier of criminality to these acts. Um, I think I had a, something else I wanted to say on this as well. Um, you know, I don't want to go into, into weeds too much more, but I just want to say that we want a safer Kentucky. And what we see is higher incarceration, more incarceration. If if we have a safer society by incarcerating more people, we would already have the safest society in the world. Like we incarcerate more people than any other country in the world. I think Kentucky right. ranks seventh among the 50 states. That is what's been going around lately when people are talking about this bill. ACLU of Kentucky says that we actually have the third most with the second most uh, children with an incarcerated parent. Either way, we have way too many people locked up in prisons. And I believe that if we think that people being homeless or people being poor in poverty is what causes crimes, Let's not criminalize the homelessness. Let's not criminalize the poverty. Let's actually work with a Make a Safer Kentucky Act that works to reduce or eliminate the poverty and the homelessness. And then that way, the crimes don't get committed or we, we lower the, the environment where there would be crimes. That's kind of my take on HB5 uh, today. Rachel, anything that you wanted to chip in on that one before talking about your topic? Well, I agree with you completely, Adam. And I just think that the bill as it relates to criminalizing homelessness, feels so short-sighted. Something I've thought about a lot is that when folks do end up incarcerated, when they then exit the prison system and are trying to rebuild lives, we know that that is really, really hard. People who are coming out of prison have even fewer resources available to them than they did before they went into prison. And so to expect people who are already in a state where they're having trouble maintaining um, renting or owning or maintaining life inside of a home that is safe and sheltered, whether it be for any number of reasons, those reasons are only going to be harder post-incarceration. So this yep. bill just feels so short-sighted to me. And it feels like a way to quickly clean up streets, but then kick the can down the road because these are still citizens who Kentucky is responsible to and for. And I just don't understand how this is ultimately going to help our state as a whole when, you know, when people are released from prison, they're going to be much worse off than they already were. Um, so I'm I'm just really confused why we are wanting to go in this direction um, from kind of a logical standpoint. Also from a financial standpoint, it's incredibly, incredibly expensive to incarcerate folks. Um, that's not the reason I'm morally opposed to it, but it's also just a logistical factor I think we should be considering. And I just wonder why aren't we thinking about more wisely using our dollars instead mm. of incarcerating to kind of get people into a situation where they can maintain, you know, a lease for for a year or years or taking care of families with kids to make sure that they're not ending up homeless in the first place. I just really don't understand why there is so much support around an idea that feels 
so incredibly narrow and short-sighted and that I think will just cause future problems for our state. So I'm with you. I'm disappointed in HB5. Definitely hope folks will call their senators and say, hey, we can do better than this. Please don't agree to this as it stands now. No, thanks for for putting that out there, Rachel. And then I don't want to beat the bush anymore. But one thing I will put, because you mentioned the cost of incarcerating more people, there has been no full impact statement, financial impact statement that has come out on how much this legislation will cost the state of Kentucky um, to actually enact it. All they they have a preliminary statement and the highest it goes in the preliminary statement is more than a million dollars. And it was checked as more than a million dollars for the state. And it was checked as more than a million dollars for the local governments. That can mean $1.5 million. That can mean $100 million. So we do not even know the cost of this bill, and it's already passed one house. So that's another thing that if you're going to call your state senator, tell them to please, at least if they're going to pass it, at least make sure that they wait to vote until we actually have a financial impact statement. Because right now we have no idea what it would cost to pass this legislation. Absolutely. Feels very irresponsible in that regard, among others. Now, I jumped in first on the state. Do you want to lead away, be the leadoff hitter here on our national uh, section of this? Sure. I um, wanted to talk about something that I'm definitely not an expert on um, nationally or at all, and that's the economy. And I feel like the economy is something that we've all been hearing about in so many different ways um, since the pandemic. And of course, right now, I think most... um, Lower and middle income families are feeling like with the rising cost of food and other goods, you know, inflation is just outpacing our ability to save and earn. And it feels like it's been a tough financial year for folks. But then when we look at the news, especially that came out just today, (coughs) excuse me, about our um, 2023 year in terms of the kind of financial health of the country, it seems like the country did so well. You know, I saw headlines that said um, the United States really crushed it. One thing I saw said hourly wages rose 4.5% since this time last year, which actually outpaces the rate of inflation in that same year. Um, I saw that the IMF World Economic Outlook published a GDP report among the U.S. and the G7 nations, the U.S. economy did quite a bit better than every other peer nation. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's like in contrast to how it kind of seems like folks are feeling and thinking about the economy. And I don't really have an answer to it. I'm just really curious about how this is going to play out for us going into 2024 in terms of personal pocketbooks, but also in terms of Um, election implications. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing I saw that was kind of cool was that there are researchers at the San Francisco Federal Reserve. They maintain this thing called the Daily News Sentiment Index. It's kind of like an algorithm that does analysis on countless newspaper articles. And so it's like fielding information related to the economy that's going out across all of our news sources. And it gives a ranking about how the news is or how the economy is being reported on. Mm -hmm. So for months and months and months, it had a negative ranking, meaning that on average, the the news reporting about the economy was really negative. Mm -hmm. And just finally in the last 
I think since November, that index has now been above zero and that trend line is rising. So it's like we're starting to see news reporting that the economy is doing better. And I think I'm just really curious if Americans are feeling that, if Kentuckians are feeling that, and how we're going to see the economy play out is in terms of the presidential election. Because, you know, it's interesting if you if you look at kind of past election data, we know that whether folks admit it or not, the economy ends up being a major driver in how folks vote in presidential elections. So I'm just so curious about how this is going to play out, both in terms of how Americans are faring in this economy and then how they're feeling about it as well. So don't have any answers for us, but lots of questions. And it's something I want to keep an eye on. Uh, the economy, like you say, that well, I don't think anyone has answers on the economy. It's such a big thing. I mean, there's never going to be a simple answer on it. That's uh, right. Like you said, it's typically the the number one factor on whether or not those in power, whether it's the presidential office uh, or those who are in in Senate seats or state house seats, the the biggest sign of whether or not the incumbents will hold their offices is the perceived again the perceived performance of the economy, not necessarily the actual performance of the economy, but the perception exactly. of how the economy is doing. And what's been interesting is that listening to 538's podcast, so those listening, 538.com is a data analytics website, and they do pop culture, but they also do sports, and they also do politics. And it's interesting that most polling shows that people in general, when you ask Americans, think that the U.S. economy is doing poorly. But most people also say that they are doing well. So the general perception is that it's bad for others, but it's fine for me. So it's interesting. A lot of things is our head versus our heart as well. Like people can look at these numbers like unemployment's at an all-time low. The stock market's at an all-time high. But you go and you see the numbers on the gas pump and you say, okay, well, it must be bad because the gas prices are higher than they were when Trump was in office or before COVID. And so these are things that it's hard because it's, it's a big issue with so many factors. I mean, clearly inflation being one of them, employment and unemployment rate being one of them, average cost of a gallon of milk or uh, a dozen eggs at the grocery store. Like we're all making personal decisions on it. And it's hard to go with just that huge metric. I like that you refer to our health relative to our peer nations. That's one thing that's been interesting is that inflation has been up here and we know that. And uh, but what we've seen is how quickly unemployment came down relative to our peer nations, mostly Western European nations. And our our inflation, which took a while to come down, was still coming down at a faster rate than most of our peer nations were. And saying that doesn't mean that it feels good, but it's nice to know that there are things that if you look at the data, you look at the numbers, you know, look at it with your head, maybe more so than your heart sometimes, that things do appear to be on the right track. So that is good. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I think back to some of the legislation that was passed by Congress, kind of led by Biden. And I... I didn't like do a good deep dive here. But, you know, I think it was called like the Chips and Jobs Act, or maybe I'm Mm -hmm. conflating too, but just that Congress actually did, you know, accomplish some things when Biden took office um, that I think set set us on track to to be where we are compared to the G7 nations. And it's like, I don't even, uh, clearly I couldn't even come up with the name of that act. Mm. Like, and I pay above average attention to mm. news and politics. So do other folks realize that, you know, we have a president and even a Congress that kind of pointed us in the right direction there? Would people attribute that to President Biden? I don't think so. So I'm just, you know, curious about that disconnect and what, if anything, Democrats can do to make that connection more clear during this election cycle. No, and that's something to be solved. And Governor Bashir won his reelection, but people like me who are running for office, we need to make sure that 
Um, I don't think I myself am going to win a campaign by saying Joe Biden is great, but I think it also right. is imperative that we let them know that things are going, you know, if things are going well, let's just make sure let's not throw out old Joe because you feel or you have a perception or you have been told that things are not going well. And so much of that is about effective messaging and, and how do we take these facts, these numbers that you're giving, and we connect that to how people are feeling. Uh, and so that's that's the challenge to those uh, like myself who are running it and trying to put a message out there. Um, but no, definitely, definitely more questions than answers. Definitely so. And I love how Governor Bashir did such a great job in his campaign, his reelection campaign, of focusing on what was really relevant to Kentucky and blocking out what was more national. And right. I think that for Democrats like you in Kentucky, that's such a good strategy. So um, yeah, I think you're right that um, really singing praises for Biden isn't going to do you any favors and it's not your responsibility to do at all. Um, just kind of a larger question for the party as a whole. So I'll be interested to keep an eye on it for sure. Sure. And I bet we're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of media coverage of the economy as the election gets closer, because it is such an important factor to most people when they decide who to vote for at the ballot box. Yes, I'm sure. Now, my thing on the national issue today is about Texas and specifically reproductive health in Texas. Two stories just happened to come out this week and they kind of poked my interest. And what I think is that they're going to show a microcosm of not just Texas, but things that are happening in other places around the country as well. So what we've seen from the recent reports is that the rate of teenage pregnancies and teenage birth has dropped in Texas for 15 consecutive years. And now looking at the 2023 data, we had the first increase in teenage birth rate in Texas uh, and now in 16 years. So we're wow. seeing the first reversal of that. Now they've also done a They've studied uh, the data between FBI, CDC, Bureau of Justice Statistics. And again, looking at Texas, they've estimated that there are approximately 26,313 rape-related pregnancies uh, in the 16 months since the legislature banned all abortions in the state. So what I'm highlighting on this is the state of women and reproductive health in America by using Texas as an example. I understand. Yeah. I, I I grew up Southern Baptist and I grew up very fiercely pro-life. Um, and I can never, I can never tell someone that I believe that their personal beliefs are wrong. If they feel that someone should not be able to have an abortion, if that is your internal belief, I totally understand that. I'm also someone who understands that that is a decision for a human being to make for themselves and, and with their doctor. We never know what someone is going through. And it's not for me to postulate as a random man who never has to face pregnancy, but I think that just this last week, Lindsay Burke, who's a representative from Lexington, did so well. She gave a press conference there at the Capitol, and she was with the ACLU of Kentucky, and she gave her personal story. Um, she had what's called a missed miscarriage, which is something that I did not know existed, but there was, she had a miscarriage, but the baby was not, or, or the body was not essentially uh, evacuated from her body, and so she needed a surgical procedure to do that. But that would technically qualify as an abortion because there's still form that's in her uterus. She also, um, she had twins in her uterus the second time uh, in utero. And so what happened is that one of the twins had a fetal anomaly, a fetal anomaly, a fatal fetal anomaly. And so if they risk not going in, they, they could have potentially maybe helped the, helped the child if there was only one in the womb. But there's two in the womb, so they could not provide, do any surgery to help the child. But if they did not end that pregnancy of the child who would not survive, 
then there's a high risk of the second child then not surviving and further damage her well, like her own life, her own health, her own ability to be pregnant in the future. And she was able to get care so that the non-viable child was removed. And then now she has a healthy child. She has, um, and I get to see it. She takes it everywhere. If anyone ever knows Lindsay Burke, she's always got that stroller, her and her husband are out there. Um, but that's the child that survived because she was able to have a medical procedure, have a healthcare procedure where, you know, so that's what I want to talk about is, you know, reproductive healthcare is necessary. It's a, it's a health decision. And again, this is not me shaming anyone who has a personal conviction of pro-life saying that they don't ever want to uh, think that, that they would ever have an abortion or don't think someone should have an abortion. But there are these parts of reproductive health care that are just that, that are health care. And we're seeing now in the data with the increase in teenage births, with this insanely large uh, number of estimated rape-induced pregnancies, just basically back how, how backwards, how much driven backwards that is going right now. We want to progress in this country. And making progress doesn't make you a liberal. It doesn't make you a Democrat. It means that you want to learn from those who came before you. It means you want to leave a better life. For those who come after you, your own children, your own grandchildren, people who are not your blood because you're just a generally decent human being. And what we see is that with the overturning of Dobbs and this outlawing of any type of these medical procedures, that women who are victims of rape, that people who have this experience as teenagers, now this is what is going to define the next phase of their life instead of them being in control of their own bodies and their own lives. And again, I know most people don't want to hear that coming from a man, but uh, but I think I'm someone with empathy. And, and that's just very um, disheartening for me to see that. I couldn't agree more. It is it is incredibly frustrating and sad and just depressing to see that news out of Texas. And, you know, I think we're at a place now post Dobbs where all of us, whether we realize it or not, we know somebody who has been affected by the fact that we don't have those healthcare options available to us here in Kentucky. Um, I certainly have close friends who've had to travel out of state to receive care. And, you know, you we may not all realize that we've got people in our circles who have faced that situation, but they exist. And those stories are happening all around us. Mm. And it's incredibly infuriating to me. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, like you, Adam, I had an upbringing where I was taught just simply that abortion equaled murder. And there really was no nuance. And um, I think that I can absolutely understand why people believe that and why it's such a visceral issue for people because, you know, it's really hard to see and understand the nuance until you've either lived it yourself or walked the road closely alongside of a friend or done a lot of searching and education to understand how deeply nuanced this is. I think, you know, when I was a young kid understanding the issue, it was just very black and white, right and wrong. You know, you don't want to kill, as I called it, a baby before they're born. Um, but now I recognize as I've grown up and surrounded myself and been in college and workplaces with many, many, many women that this is just so much more gray than I ever mm. understood. And it's okay to learn and grow and change your mind. I actually wish that that was more common in our culture to change your mind and to say, hey, I've learned new information and now I have a new opinion. Um, we don't see that very much. But this is an issue where I think that can be really important. I think most folks who 
you know, for deeply personal and religious reasons, feel like abortion is wrong. Also, feel that rape is wrong. And, you know, that casts a different light onto unwanted pregnancies. And um, that incest is wrong and can understand that when we're talking about young girls being abused by family members, maybe we want to look at the life of this girl down the road and care about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we're talking about um, sort of the health aspect of this issue, you know, it, I've had to learn so much. Like you mentioned that you didn't know previously what a miss miscarriage was and that to get, you know, a DNC is the same, even if the fetus has already, I don't know the right language, if the fetus has already not survived, even to go ahead and get the DNC to help move the body along in the processing, that is still considered under, you know, medical coding an abortion. I don't think people understand that, you know, even if there are just, even if you're a woman who has passed um, the age of childbearing, you know, and you need to have a DNC performed, it's still coded as abortion. Wow. People don't understand that um, in terms of our medical documenting, that those two things are synonymous. And because of that, I think it makes folks misunderstand what we mean when we talk about abortion rights, when in fact we're talking about a whole array of medical care that mm-hmm. has nothing to do with actually ending a pregnancy. And I do want to say, though, that now that I've grown, learned, and changed, I understand that there are many, many reasons why a woman or a pregnant person may not want to continue a pregnancy, and those don't always have to do with a fetal abnormality or um, some sort of trauma, and that there are other super valid reasons to need an abortion as well. So I don't want to discount those or make it sound like I don't think that those are viable reasons as well, because I do. And I've grown and learned and changed my mind on that. And I just hope that folks will continue to have these more nuanced conversations. And even though you're a dude, I really appreciate you caring about this and talking about this. And I do think that we need more men who care enough to bring it up. So thanks for that, Adam. As a woman, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and I like how you you threw the you threw a note in there about how I, I kind of focus this on on the fatal fetal anomaly and I kind of focus this on the number of rape related pregnancies. But you made a great point in that there are women who make that choice that are not tied to these other factors. And and what I say to that is the hardest decision for a woman to make is the decision that she has to make. Um, yeah. And it's not my decision. And it's not a politician Frankfurt's decision or in Washington, D.C.'s decision. If someone has to make that decision, it's probably the hardest decision that they need to make. And someone who disagrees with them, screaming that they're a murderer or anything like that, is not helping the situation. Um, these yeah. people who had to make the decision... More deserve our compassion um, and yes. we would do better to have more compassion for one another. Yes. Agree completely. Well, I feel like that was a little bit of a downer to end on, but no, that's, that's, a, that's everything we had <laughs> planned. Um, so again, maybe this will actually go live and we'll actually broadcast this out. And if so, congratulations on listening to episode number one of Kentucky politics, more than meets the eye. Um, anything else, Rachel, you want to uh, put out there? You want to tell people where to find you and follow you? Absolutely. Um, I'm over at Instagram at Moms for Kentucky. And um, even though my handle says moms, I welcome anybody, um, non-parents or dads or um, just any Kentuckian who's interested in um, 
sort of a take on politics that's accessible, that's in your phone, that keeps you updated on what's going on here in Kentucky without having to scroll news headlines. That's sort of what I strive to do. Always could be doing better, but I'm a mom of three young kids and super crazy life. So, you know, I just do the best I can, but always appreciate folks joining me over there at Moms for Kentucky. Now, it's February 5th when we're recording this, so assuming this gets out on time, is there a rally coming up in Frankfurt for um, for the issues that you're a big fighter and advocate for? Yes. I think February 13th is a big day um, related to gun violence prevention, which is an issue I care very much about. The car bill, SB 13, is one that I have been following super closely, advocating for really strongly, would love to see folks um, come out on that day. And um, if not, you know, if folks are not able to actually be in Frankfurt, just continue to encourage people to reach out to their own, you know, state senator, state representative. I love calling the LRC and just leaving a message for all legislators or all House members, all senators. It's like such a great tool to be able to do that. And I totally encourage everybody to call and say, especially senators at this point, call and say, I really support SB 13. Um, Please support it as well. That's the car bill, crisis aversion and rights retention. So that's what I'm super excited about this year. That's awesome. I'm so glad that you put that out there. I'm excited. I cannot be there on that day. I still have to. Um, my my in-person job, I work on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but I get to Frankfurt on the other days if I can. Um, that is on a Tuesday, I believe, of next week. Um, but I'm excited that there uh, is a lot of interest in that, and I'm excited for it. Uh, myself, you can find more about me, what I'm up to. You can go to kydeservesmore.com. More spelled the same way as this podcast, M-O-O-R-E. And you learn more about me, and there's links to all the things, the Instagram, the Facebook, the TikTok, and X it's called now. So anyone can go there and learn more about me. Um, I think I'm just realizing that I forgot to ask Rachel something else back in the state portion, but that's on me as a first-time podcast host, but we'll move <laughs> on from there. Rachel, feel free to stick around, but the rest of y'all, thank you so much. Um, I don't think you can hit like and subscribe because this is not a YouTube video, but we'll hope to catch you next time. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. <laughs>